This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! Super Investors is brought to you by The Felder Report. When I'm not interviewing one of the most interesting minds in the world of finance, I'm doing a ton of reading and research. I put together some of the most interesting things that I find into a Saturday morning email that I send out free. If you're interested in subscribing to something like this, just go to thefelderreport.com right there on the homepage, click join now, and you'll be good to go. Known as one of the greatest financial historians alive, Edward Chancellor has been working in the markets for three decades now. His study of finance theory, speculative bubbles, and economics goes back even further. The Price of Time, Edward's latest book, is clear evidence of his passion for the subject of financial history and his ability to convey the key concepts in an effective and uniquely entertaining way. The book does a masterful job of chronicling the modern history of easy money and explaining its many secondary consequences, including the collapse of productivity growth, unaffordable housing, rising inequality, the loss of market competition, and financial fragility. More than that, it takes the reader on a journey from the beginnings of modern central banking and John Law's Mississippi Company to today's fight against rapidly rising inflation pressures, imploring the reader to think critically about what it all means for the future of the economy and markets. In this episode, Edward shares his inspiration for writing it and his thoughts on what history suggests may lie ahead. So please enjoy my conversation with Edward Chancellor. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Edward, welcome to the show. Peace be with you. You know, I think it was almost four years ago, I read a piece that you wrote for Reuters titled The Mother of All Speculative Bubbles which I think really hit the nail on the head. And um, I, I think it even may have mentioned that it was part of your efforts in putting together your new book. Um, so when Jonathan Tepper reached out to me uh, to tell me about the book and to put us together, I was really ecstatic. So thank you for being here. Uh, good. Well, we can talk about bubbles and interest late, yep. later in our conversation. Terrific. Uh, Before we get to the book, uh, I'm curious to know more about the author. Tell me a bit about yourself. You studied modern history, is that right? Yeah, I, I, the English say read. (laughs) I read history at Cambridge, um, specializing in 18th century European history, and then did a a postgraduate degree in also in 18th century European history at Oxford. and that ended in the early 90s, whereupon I decided not to become an academic, but um, um, earn a living. So I, I went into the City of London as an investment banker or, uh, working for Lazards, uh, but I didn't really like investment banking. So I quit that after a couple of years and, and then started writing. And, and given the, my background as a historian, I find myself sort of drawn into working you know, primarily on from a sort of financial history perspective. Well, it, it's clear that history is, is a deep passion. Just the book is so thoroughly researched. Um, but you said, you know, you, you went into finance to earn a living, but was there something specifically that drew you to finance uh, as a career? Um, <laughs> well, I, I suppose that... Um, I I thought that if one, one needed to earn a living, one might as well try and make money from money, so to speak, <laughs> right. uh, which which is actually something, um, as I mentioned in the book, was Aristotle's criticism of, of, of charging interest. So I was being sort of anti-Aristotelian in my choice of career. Well, it, it's something that, uh, you know, I, I wrestle with, I, you know, worked at, uh, I started at Bear Stearns in, in the 90s. And, uh, you know, I've thought that, it, you know, working in, uh, trying to make money out of money, as you put it, is, you know, uh, it can be a pretty shallow uh, way of, of earning a living. But for me, it was really, uh, you know, I think Paul Tudor Jones talked about when he was in college, he was very interested in games and backgammon and these things. And and somebody said, well, if you're interested in games, you know, let me introduce you to the greatest game <laughs> there is to play. And that's the markets and futures trading. Yes. Um, 
Well, I mean, just so I, I then, you know, having written a history of financial speculation in the in the nineteen nineties, I, I then sort of got drawn onto you know what we call the buy side, onto the investment side, working, um, doing some sort of consultancy work for hedge funds, and then later working for uh, GMO in Boston in uh, as in their asset allocation team. So I think I. You know, my mistake in 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 when I started out in finance was going into uh, investment banking or what we used to call corporate finance, which um, you know which didn't suit me. But I think on the inv- on the investment side, uh, that is a a different business. It's intellectually uh, extraordinarily rich, um, multidisciplinary, and um, really the you know there is um there's no end to the learning process once one thinks of you know one, once one thinks of the world through the sort of lens of investment you know through, through the lens of investment i i did read yesterday that schumpeter said that the stock exchange was was a poor substitute for the holy grail but aside from that i think there's you know a huge amount uh, you know to to be learned from thinking about markets it, right, and you mentioned uh, GMO. So I, you know, when I when I saw that in your bio, I thought that that would be a pretty natural, uh, I guess, relationship to work with Jeremy Grantham, who's done so much wonderful work on bubbles and these things. Um, was was working with him part of what drew you there? Or was it something else? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, yes. Yeah, let me tell you. So I wrote this book. Um, Devil Take the Heimers, which is a history of financial speculation that came out just at the uh, just towards the peak of the dot com bubble. I think it was published in the summer of ninety nine, and at the time the the, the quant investors um, and and GMO under Jeremy Grantham was you know is largely a quant shop, um, but there were other quant investors like Rob Arnott, who was at the time at. Uh, had an outfit called First Quadrant, now called Research Affiliates, and Cliff Asnes at AQR. And suddenly I had all these quants <laughs> knocking on my door because they were looking, you know, the, the quants were, were aghast at the speculative bubble. They were underweight, the tech stocks at the time. And they were very pleased that a, a financial historian had come along and given um, a bit of, if you will, sort of, anecdotal support for the quantitative met for the quant message that they were putting across and at that time i i I got to know jeremy i worked as a journalist in new york uh in in 2005-6 and i i I wrote a a specialist report on the credit boom uh, for a hedge fund manager called chris minodi in london which we published in 2005 uh uh, called Crunch Time for Credit, and I gave Jeremy a copy of this report, and um, I th- and and really then that sort of led to the conversation in which Jeremy hired me. Well, let, let's get let's get to the book. I I, <clears throat> I have to tell you, I, I have a belief that the majority of business and finance books should probably just be essays or papers. Most of them just don't have the the substance nor the quality of writing to justify a whole book. But The Price of Time is one of the true exceptions. I've, I really enjoyed reading it. I learned a great deal from it. Um, but I, I have to ask you, what was the inspiration for writing it? Was there something specific that happened in your career? Was there a moment in time when you said, I, I have to write this book? Um, well, you know, after, the, I, I suppose when I was doing the work on the credit credit boom, uh, in 2003, four, and five, um, I, I, I did come to the view then that um, that credit boom was principally engendered by the very low interest rates that were set by the Federal Reserve after the dot-com bust. Right. Anyhow, um, I, in, and I also became quite sort of interested in Hyman Minsky and his financial instability hypothesis but then we had the crisis and interest rates were taken down even lower i as i said i was at gmo at the time we saw the 
stock markets and the financial markets rebound very rapidly. And um, I suppose I felt that we 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 thought we thought we could model um, it bond here. You know, we thought we could provide forecasts for 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 bond markets based on sort of mean reversion models. And I realized that 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 our for, our forecasting uh, wasn't wasn't at all good on the bond front. It it had a good track record uh, historically on the equity side, and. Um, so I got into sort of thinking more about you know, that we didn't really know enough about interest rates, about long-term rates, and we didn't really understand long, you know, bond market cycles. And then, you know, if you remember, there was you know, massive resurgence of so-called carry trades, um, uh, international carry trades. People after the financial crisis, people borrowing in dollars and, and lending in emerging markets. Um, and we, we saw the, um, a lot of, you know, um, yield chasing of people taking sort of what appeared to be sort of large amounts of risk, um, in order to, to enhance yield. We saw us stock markets rise to, uh, record valuations or close to record valuations, certainly, um, in by, by last year, uh, but very inflated against the historical uh, average from you know, 2010 onwards. Um, and then on the economic front, one noticed a sort of um, an extraordinary lackluster economic performance. So we found that the financial markets bounced back, aided by the monetary policies of the Federal Reserve. But the real economy, we can talk of such a thing, uh, sort of remained not exactly flat on its back, you know, employment recovered, but there was no productivity growth. And so I decided to come back to England um, a few years ago, 2014, and and I left GMO to go back to writing. And um, by about 2015, I, I came to the conclusion that you couldn't really understand what was going on in the financial world, and you couldn't really understand what was going on the in in the economy, and you couldn't really understand a lot of the sort of social, a lot of the sort of social and political developments, the, the incipient rise of of what people dismiss as populism, sort of popular discontent with the system. Um, you couldn't really understand any of those if you didn't. Have a proper grasp of of what interest was, what it did, and what the effects uh, on the on civilization were of taking interest rates down to the lowest level in history. So that that really became my starting point. And uh, I, as you say, it's not really you can't really uh, cover all that in a single paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is really an intellectual voyage. Uh, that starts in in Mesopotamia in the third millennium BC and then runs through to the current day. Well, it, the book uh, is a wonderful chronicle of the history of easy money in modern times. Uh, but there was a point when I was reading it where I thought the book feels like it was almost written for posterity, like it was intended to explain to a reader in the distant future how we could possibly have gotten so far off course, like the Great Crash 1929 or something. But then very near the end of the book, you write, uh, quote, so far, each step we've taken on this new road to serfdom has been incremental and justified on the grounds of expediency. Little thought has been given to the general direction in which we've been traveling. There is no grandmaster plan, unlike Marxism, to concentrate minds. Rather, we've blundered, to use Hayek's term, into greater government control of the economy. And the more we blunder, the more the system appears to fail, which in turn justifies further interventions. Was that your intent in writing? It was to really get people to stop and take a hard and close look at this road that we're on with monetary policy? Um, yes, I mean, <laughs> when one writes, it's it's very difficult to know why one writes a book because um, certainly there's not much financial in, inducement uh, to do it. So perhaps there is the um, perhaps there is the vanity of the author 
who hopes that they might might produce something of lasting worth. And um, what I'm hoping to do in this book is is not just provide um, you know a, a framework for understanding the the really most phenomenally important uh, concept of interest, but also uh, a really a, a a snapshot of the financial developments of the last decade as seen through the prism of these ultra low rates for which as as I've said before seem to be the sort of determining factor of so many so many um, developments so it, it, if you will it's a it's a sort of first take uh on on recent history uh, and I, I i the test will be um i don't know whether i'll be alive then but you know in 20 or 30 years time whether this still uh, attracts some attention and and even if it doesn't attract much attention i suppose it'll find a place in a library <laughs> and someone will dig you know sort of future incarnation of myself will, will dig it out when they're trying to understand what went on in the 2010s Right. Well, it already has an important place in my library. So, um, but I think maybe it would be helpful to just, uh, you know, the book is, is uh, called The Price of Time. Uh, what is The Price of Time? I think it might just help listeners to hear you simply explain the title, which may be obvious to some and not so obvious to others. Um, well, the, the thing is that interest uh, has a number of different definitions. Um, sometimes people talk about interest being a a, a discount rate uh, or a capitalization rate for for valuing uh, businesses. It, it can also be the hurdle rate for uh, investments and for the allocation of capital. It can incorporate uh, a, a risk factor. So uh, I cite one definition of interest being uh, the price of anxiety it's the cost at which people borrow and therefore the price of leverage so you can see there are sort of a number of different um different potential definitions of interest but i was looking for something that uh was more that encompassed everything all these various definitions and perhaps even more um people have occasionally and i think rather loosely unthinkingly referred to interest as the price of money but what it is it's it's the price for the use of money or or in or even any other asset over a period of time and time is the important factor as i mentioned um in 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 the early chapters, the charging of interest in in um, the ancient world was criticised by very distinguished you know, philosophers such as Aristotle uh, and Plato, and, and and later by the uh, medieval theologians, the, sc- the scholars who 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 borrowed largely from Aristotle. And they said that um, that the lender shouldn't charge more uh, than he or she had given at the outset that this was a sort of an illicit transaction the as as we were saying earlier the making of money from money because as 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 aristotle said money is inherently barren and a view that really sort of later found expression in sort of marxism where all value comes from labor um but then uh, a, a one one, I think, 13th or 14th century English scholar uh, called Thomas of Cobham uh, made this uh, insightful comment that the that the usurer, uh, usury being the term for a sort of illicit illicit charge of interest, that the usurer was a seller of time, and that this was wrong, said Co- said Thomas of Cobham, because time belongs to God. Well. I mean, perhaps that's an acceptable view uh, in uh, medieval Christendom, but you know, once you once the Renaissance comes along, 
and um, you put sort of mankind at the center of your of your civilization, not God, uh, uh, then time belongs uh, belongs to man. Time is man's most precious possession, and so that the 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 price of time uh, is is what I see as as the as the most important uh, and encompassing definition of interest. And why it's important is because finance, people have a tendency to forget this, but finance is all about transactions across time. It's an intertemporal system. It allows us to, to take our current, um, our current wealth and transfer that wealth, our, our spending across time so we can save we can invest we can draw our consumption from the future into the present we can defer it and something is needed to coordinate uh, these transactions at, at, at one point if you remember i referred to i asked the reader to imagine a, a bridge across time in which um there is a two-way traffic uh, from the present to the future, and from the future to the present, whether we're shifting our savings or borrowing to cons- to take our consumption from the future into the present day. And I'm saying that the the interest charge is like a sort of toll road, a toll on the traffic on this bridge, because if you don't have some sort of charge for time, the intertemporal coordination if i can use you know a slightly jargonish term that this intertemporal coordination of a very complex system uh, will cease to function and i think you know in a nutshell all our current economic and financial problems can be described uh, as as problems of inter of sort of intertemporal disequilibrium or, or you know, to, you know to, or if you want, just you know, disequilibrium, uh, and and that that's I I say why we need um, interest. It's true, as you say, that the thrust of the argument is is about easy money and the ill effects of easy money, but that's really only because we uh, have been living through a particular uh, period of extraordinarily easy money. Um, my main, I suppose, my my the, the the search for the holy grail is to find a rate of interest that is that is is just because in the end we we're dealing with a problem not just of sort of intertemporal uh, equilibrium and and communication but also to do with fairness and one need, and interest is is something that balances the 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 if you will, the, the interest of the lender and the uh, with the interests of of the borrower, and one needs to have a fair rate uh, to satisfy both parties. Well, th- that's the perfect lead in to my next question. So, thank you, and I'm glad you brought up the bridge metaphor because I think that was really an insight. Something I, I I made a note in the book because it's really an insightful way to think about interest. But you write. <clears throat> Excuse me, quote, interest is the difference in monetary values across time, the rate at which present consumption is exchanged for future consumption. Interest represents the time value of money. Later on, you write that during the 17th century, quote, uh, a consensus emerged among English practitioners of political uh, arithmetic that interest was much like any other price whose level should be determined by buyers and sellers in the market rather than by government fiat. Why is this concept of the natural rate so crucial? Well, it's an interesting um, it's an interesting point when you use the term natural rate because they would have, and when we're talking about 17th century writers, I, I, I mention in particular the philosopher John Locke who, who wrote a very interesting pamphlet on the consequences of lowering uh, of of the lowering of interest in which he pointed out uh, the problems that that would be caused that might be caused 
uh, if interest were 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 reduced below this um this level that it would naturally find in the market from borrowers and and sellers meeting each other so this is your the 17th century natural rate is is a market determined rate and at the time there were calls to um lower uh, the legal level uh, maximum rate of of interest there were still usury laws that uh in in britain at the time that 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 set in law's day the maximum rate of interest at at 6% and people were calling for it to be moved to 4% and law was saying well that would be below its market rate and problems would happen i think uh what happens um you know when we get into a sort of more academic age of professional economists the natural rate takes on a slightly different uh, uh, perhaps more than a slightly different meaning uh, a me- uh, is 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 becomes a reference for what is deemed to be the equilibrium rate of an economy reflecting its inherent return on capital and and various other other fact other factors i think the 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 early economists uh, were moving towards in in you know were part of a, a period that was looking towards um, natural rights and natural laws away from sort of divine, uh, uh, away from a society sort of governed by divine injunctions. And it was uh, John Locke's um, sort of um, take, you know, taking this, this viewpoint and, and extending it into the area of finance. And, and I think that you know, people, people, I've had a bit of a correspondence uh, since I published the book with an economist friend of mine uh, called, called Andrew Smithers, and 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 uh, people are some people are, are questioning the you know whether an, a natural rate exists in in the sense of a sort of in the sense that the modern economists uh, mean it, but I think certainly uh, the the must be uh, a rate in which uh, interest is determined. Uh, by um, by people operating in the market, um, as opposed to that doesn't necessarily reflect a sort of an equilibrium rate of a static economy, but but it would just be the rate at which people transacted, um, so to speak, fairly. Well, you know, it, it actually reminds me of a of a, a quote about. Um, you know, it, it, I, I'm in a botch it, but it was you know something about um, you know I, I don't know how to define pornography, but I know it when I see it. I think you know it's I can't define the natural level of interest rates, but I know when they're too low, right? There there are obvious signs of when rates are too low, and, yeah. and sadly, I think we've had firsthand personal experience with the damage caused by forcing rates below their natural level. But as you point out, uh, you know it, it's astounding to me that several you know, centuries ago, John Locke pointed out the consequences of this. So what were some of the things that he, that he warned about? Um, well, John Locke thought the, there would be a profusion of bankers and that it would, it would be to their advantage, uh, uh, but not to, um, but not to um, other peoples. He, he thought that, that widows and orphans would would suffer he thought that uh he thought that house prices would be affected in, in fact actually you know interestingly one of the demand one of the, when people were arguing uh for lower and lower interest in the 17th century it was there were two two sets of people who were arguing one were the sort of indebted landlords the you know the nobles who who wanted uh who wanted higher land values so they could borrow more money, and the other were the city merchants who wanted uh, cheaper money to um, buy back their shares and engage in financial operations. and And Locke was saying, "Well, you know, you would be serving their interests by lowering by lowering the rate of interest, but you wouldn't be serving um, anyone else's interest." And then he makes a, a, another. <laughs> amusing point where he says that you know when when a when a country has when a sort of when a, when when a country has sort of gone to rack and ruin the lowering of interest won't actually be of any advantage that it it say say Locke also sort of foresaw 
um, as we've experienced you know, since 2008, uh, this period of, of you know, ultra low interest rates, that it didn't, uh, we, we see certain um, you know, parts of society you know, have tremendously benefited in people that, that Locke identified, the, the bankers and financiers um, have, have benefited, but not uh, really the, the, the wider society. Well, well, let's get into some of those specific th- things. As you outlined in your article that I mentioned at the outset, the manipu- at the outset, the the manipulation of interest rates below their natural level, or or you know, our best guess of what that might be, has created the mother of all speculative bubbles, not just in one asset class, but in virtually all of them. Um, but beyond the everything bubble, there are a number of other less obvious consequences. You you touched on some. Uh, that can, I guess, trace their origin to suppressing interest rates. Uh, what I, I guess, let's let's just talk through some of those uh, specifically. Um, you know, you mentioned. Uh, I think you you kind of referred to wealth inequality, and and to me, so I think I, it's a, yeah. A, a, I mean, I, the wealth inequality, um, which I uh, write about. I mean, you could say in, income and wealth inequality um i'm i write about that because as you know in the um last last decade you know the, the most popular book on sort of economic history and theory was thomas piketty's capital in the 21st century and in this book piketty argued that uh, inequality increased when uh, the rate of return was higher than GDP growth. And that was uh, notated as R being greater than G. Now, as you probably know, R is also the notation we use for the rate of interest. And what I argue is that when the rate of interest is kept below the rate of growth, um, say in a way, below its natural level, in inverted commas, uh, then you get um, asset price inflation. And you can see this in the US in the data of US household wealth uh, produced by the Federal Reserve. And you also get a growth in the financial sector. And you see this in the, the... the U.S. data for the size of the size and profitability of what they call the fire sector, the finance, insurance, and real estate sector. That um, after the financial crisis, you know, when you'd have thought the banking would have was flat on its, you know, was flat on its back, the fire sector actually grew to you know, larger um, level, I think, than ever before, and also contributed both more to um, GDP growth and 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 a greater share of profitability. Um, now, you know, if, you know, any of us who've worked in finance know that uh, our incomes are, to large extent, um, determined not by our innate skill, but by uh, if you're on the investment banking side, the size of the deals that are going through, um, and also if you're if you're on the asset management side, by your assets under management. And um, you know, in particular, um, you know, you know, when 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 markets rise, um, fund managers, uh, you know, uh, in general, um, get a, a pay rise too. And then, then you know, we also live in a world in which you know, increasing amount of stock based compensation, and so the you know the um, you know so the you know, CEOs and senior management also get pay rises. Um, when the stock market's doing well, so uh, I, I then sort of argue that um, that Piketty's formula equation needs to be turned around. That that inequality increases when uh, R is lower than G, and we find evidence for that both in the U.S. in the nineteenth century, and uh, specifically with much more detail in the 1920s and then you know in the in the last three or four decades where you know inequality has largely um 
you know, risen uh, in tandem with the decline in uh, in interest rates. And and you can see, I think there's a chart in the book showing um, two things. I think it's showing both um, inequality relative to the total returns on on uh, U.S. Uh, treasury bonds, but also uh, household wealth relative to, you know, uh, charted next to the Fed funds rate. And as the Fed funds rate has gone lower and lower, uh, household wealth relative to GDP has climbed higher and higher. Right. And and I'm just on the face of it, I've always found it astounding that uh, central bankers can tell us that they're targeting wealth effects, but they're not responsible for wealth inequality. It's just, it's astounding to me. But, I, you know, I, there, there are other things that are, I think, less obvious consequences or, or unintended consequences of uh, monetary policy. I, I interviewed William White on this podcast a few years ago to discuss these, but I think the book does a wonderful job of really uh, analyzing each one of these. You talk about, I think, the pension crisis, and you mentioned unaffordable housing, um, rapidly rising debt levels, even excess carbon emissions can, you know, trace some back to monetary policy. But I mean, let's stop there for a sec, because I think that it it is an important point, because there's a chapter on China, and I think it's actually quite an important chapter. There's a tendency... Um, you know, people reading the book and framing, you know, framing it in terms of, you know, of, um, you know, or, or, of the sort of Anglosphere and our own particular concerns. But you know, China has also, with its um, sort of quasi, quasi dollar pegging uh, of its of, of the yuan to the dollar, has imported uh, easy money. Uh, from the Fed's easy money policy, it's one of the unintended consequences uh, of, of, of of the federal Federal Reserve's monetary policy. And given that, and and they and that that the, the easy money in um, in in China ha- has fed this tremendous um, real estate bubble, and probably the greatest real estate bubble in history. Uh, and then the greatest, you know, f- alongside that, the the greatest investment boom in history, and and as as we all know, you know, China accounting for, for you know near fifty percent of global consumption of, of steel and and many other raw materials, and and more than a hundred percent of incremental uh, consumption growth over over much the last two decades, and. Um, and that has uh, been accompanied by, you know, I- extraordinary carbon emissions. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, 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 are you aware that that you know the last twenty five years or perhaps thirty years, I think that that more than half of man made uh, carbon, you know, of, of global warming. Uh, emissions have occurred since the industrial revolution so it it does seem and that is so it doesn't seem sort of di- disconnected and again this is you know another what it points to to my mind is that if you have um if you if you set interest rates at, at inappropriate levels you will have them uh, a variety of of strange effects you a very low interest rate uh, encourages you know the uh, investment in 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 white elephant projects it o- often encourages uh, real estate uh, booms and china uh, i think was you know was worked out perhaps it's not true but china was said to have consumed more cement between 2009 and 2012 than the us over the course of the entire 20th century and cement, as you know, alongside steel, it, it is one of the most um, uh, most intensive emitters of, of, of greenhouse gases. And I was thinking about it. I've seen some of the statistics around the uh, you know usage of uh, you know cement in, in China, and, and it's just mind boggling. Uh, one of the other consequences of, of monetary policy, and I, I think this is 
really for me, one of the key takeaways is this vicious cycle for the economy of lowering interest rates below the natural level, which leads to uh, weak productivity, weak growth because of the, you know, it allows zombies to, you know, uh, uh, exist in the, in the economy. Capital's misallocated. Um, it, it just destroys productivity. That leads to a weaker economy, which necessitates even lower rates. And so it's a, it's kind of this vicious cycle that, that we're in. Yes. I mean, the, there are several, you know, s- several streams fill this, you know, fill the river. Uh, uh, of this sluggish river of low productivity growth, uh, and one of them, I think, is um, is that you know go back to the role of interest as as the as the um, as 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 the as a hurdle rate as the allocator of capital. If you have um, very low interest, uh, you will um, encourage people to invest in. In in projects that um, have you know that have um, you know that are perhaps have uh, too low returns you know too low returns on 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 capital, uh, but you also and some people don't agree with this, um, but I think many people do um, that the very low interest rates are a, um, a a way of sort of loan forbearance so that companies. That couldn't, uh, that wouldn't otherwise be able to, um, that would otherwise go bust because they couldn't uh, uh, pay their interest charges or or refinance. Uh, the, the, the capital is trapped trapped in these uh, low return uh, projects or, or 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 businesses, and that discourages investment in those sectors. It, it discourages R and D. Uh, it discourages employment growth and perhaps most importantly of all it discourages new entrants into those areas i mean i say for i mean i cite for instance you know uh, italian cement manufacturers um but you you could imagine you, you wouldn't want to be of which there are needless to say too many um and kept alive um by the italian banks uh, funded with uh, very low uh, very low cost finance financing from the European Central Bank. We, you know, you might have brilliant ideas about how to uh, revolutionize the production of cement in Italy, uh, but you're simply not going to get financing or enter into into that area uh, because there are too many zombies who were who likely to 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 um, to, you know, to keep you out. So, and I think you know that that's one of the contributors of uh to to um the decline in productivity the, the and and therefore low interest rates begetting even lower rates uh there are other problems you know if you think about it um you know, i was talking about the role that interest rates interest plays in in balancing our present from our future consumption now go back to before the financial crisis when american households were taking out 500 billion dollars of mortgage uh, equity withdrawal, home loans, uh, based on their um, inflated uh, housing collateral. And if you remember at the time, you know, the the, the um, policymakers say, well, look, you know, there's nothing to worry about here. Uh, the balance sheets are, are very robust. Well, they were robust because they were the 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 assets in the balance sheet uh, were at highly inflated levels or artificially inflated levels. But the real problem was that households had taken out had consumed more uh, in, you know, consumed from the future. And therefore, when the, after the crisis, they left with uh, too many household debts. And one consequence of that is that they, their future consumption growth is going to be lower than it would have been otherwise. And um, consumption, you know, being a, a contributor to, to, to GDP, that you're going to get lower GDP growth. So that's, Another area in which the low rates beget initially a surge in consumption, but then lower consumption, and then, as I mentioned, you know the the low rates also discourage savings, uh, and savings are you know, one definition of interest is a reward for abstinence, rather sort of quaint nineteenth century definition. But um, for all the talk we heard of a 
global savings glut, uh, for which, in fact, one can't find much empirical evidence. Um, in 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 the US and in the UK, actually, I'm, I'm afraid to say, in, in all the sort of in all the the Anglosphere, <laughs> uh, Australia too, uh, we we had sort of woefully low. We've had woefully low levels of savings, and uh, those low levels of savings um, uh, have you know the 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 uh, and have have compounded well they've compounded at quite a high rate as long as interest rates were falling and those were in, invested and those savings were invested in in the in the in the in in long dated assets like equities or bonds whatever uh, but the 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 underlying problem was of lack of savings and if there's a lack of savings you're going to get slower lower consumption in future and less investment and therefore you're going to get lower uh, productivity growth well, to put this, uh, the low interest rates and, and the kind of this, this vicious cycle of uh, low rates, low consumption, low productivity, it, to put it into some kind of historical, historical perspective, uh, you wrote, you write, quote, in the ancient world, interest rates charted the course of great civilizations. In Babylon, Greece, and Rome, interest rates followed a U-shaped curve over the centuries, declining as each civilization became established and prospered and rising sharply during periods of decline and fall. Very low interest rates appear to have been the calm before the storm, end quote. Uh, in, in the book, you really leave it there, but I'm curious to know what your Hang knowledge... Hang on, I, I, I think, don't I say somewhere, this is hardly a comforting thought. <laughs> you, you do, yes, you do. But, but, but you don't really elaborate on that. So I guess, I, you know, I'd I just like to know uh, what your knowledge of history suggests the coming storm might look like. Um, well, um, you know, a... a what might the coming storm look like? The the as I say, you talk. We're talking about these U shape interest uh, rates so over time, um, and falling to their lowest levels just before a collapse. Um, so, it may, if one was getting sort of very pessimistic, um, one would say one one would say that you know perhaps we we have been at sort of at the right-hand side of that U. Um, another thing that's interesting to note, which I'm sure I mentioned somewhere, is that over the course of the 20th century, and we we can throw in the, the few years of the 21st century too, interest rates have moved to higher levels uh, than ever before in history, but also to lower levels. And that um, would seem to be a function of our fiat currency system. At the moment, uh, we're at a juncture that inflation has, you know, has entered into the system, uh, and the central bankers are trying to keep interest. They, they're trying to keep interest rates low. As they're, they're trying to keep, they're trying to raise interest rates enough to restrain inflation, but uh, they're also worried uh, whether they always admit it publicly or not, uh, that uh, a very sharp rate of rise in interest would unravel the, the sort of the, the uh, precarious situation we've got ourselves into uh, in recent years of excessive debt, inflated valuations, stuff we talked about. Um, if the central bankers um, fail in their task, or, it, or even... You know, inflation might come down, but we might have some you know, f further problems, or, you know, economic problems, and central bankers then put their foot on the gas again. Well, I can see um, a situation coming about that whereby the inflationary circumstances of the next of the coming years would would be worse than we had what we experienced in the so-called Great Inflation of the 1970s. I mean, already people are saying in the, that in Britain, where I'm speaking to you from, that um, the inflation you know, may well hit uh, 15% and, and, and come closer to 20%. I'm, I'm saying off the top of my head, I think it got close to, I think it hit 25% in, 
in 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 Britain in sort of 1974 75 um so i i think we could be at, in a position where the system unravels um and, and uh, in a sort of um it, it with a sort of inflationary sort of bursts of of of, of inflation and and interest rates would will 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 have to rise um a friend of mine called Russell Napier um strategist and also financial historian he argues that interest will 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 be kept below um sort of nominal gdp growth in the coming years and that we'll have financial uh, repression as it's called um almost you know in the into the sort of median term uh, and and that that will actually require the state taking an even greater role in in credit decisions and the allocation of capital so um you know it, it's it's difficult it's it's difficult to 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 exactly uh imagine how things w- will play out there's a danger that one can be too sort of doom monkering um but I, th- the way I see it is this: is look look at those charts on U.S. household net worth, you know, running, you know, at is it sort of seventy five or a hundred percentage points of GDP above their long term average, and you th- there is, I think I have to say I think there is inevitably going to be a great collapse in in household wealth, and and that therefore. Um, you know, I think I I think that you know in in five years time, ten years time, that uh, any investor who has actually managed to sort of hang on to their purchasing power, as it was at the beginning of this year, may actually consider themselves lucky, um, because uh, in aggregate, I can't see how that job is going to be done. I think too much of the wealth out there, and this is a point I make, is 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 virtual wealth. I mean, is wealth that is just, is just it exists by virtue of its market price rather than any underlying genuine asset, and that wealth, as we've seen so far this year, is is remarkably vulnerable. Well, that that chart of household net worth to GDP is the visual representation of the fact that the stakes have really never been higher for for central bankers. But you mentioned, you know, the rise of populism, I think, in the introduction of the book is is one of the things you noticed. uh, And and people should understand the role of uh, monetary policy and what's going on there. But my, you know, very limited understanding of of history um, would suggest that rising inequality typically gets to a point where uh, redistribution in some form happens, either that's through policy choices or through revolution. Um, in terms of policy choices, I think about the dual mandate uh, that Congress you know, gave to the Fed. How much of the situation uh, that we're in do you think really comes down to hubris on the part of central bankers and how much of it is just smart, well-meaning people pursuing the impossible task of meeting the dual mandate? Um, well, I mean, you, so I don't know if you need to refer to it as hubris. I think my own view is that the central banks have them the models through which they try and understand the economy and financial system are flawed, and that leads them to make errors, even if they they weren't um, even if they weren't. Overconfident. I think they did become overconfident in recent years, and 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 frankly, you know, if you have a sort of magic wand that can levitate, uh, you know, trillions of dollars of wealth out of nothing, then then um, perhaps one, you know, you, any of us might become a tiny bit hubristic. So I think that there's a problem of the, um, you know, of, of the models, the underlying problem of of understanding economics. So I mean, I was thinking the other day that. You know, you know, over the course of my career, my interest in central bank, the, the economics establishment understood uh, really nothing about speculative bubbles. And then we had the dot-com bust. They understood nothing about credit. And then we had the global financial crisis. They understood really very little about interest. And then we had, you know, this 
decade of sort of secular stagnation and building up to uh, the latest problem, which is inflation, which, again, they don't seem to understand very much about. So we really definitely, to my mind, have a crisis of, of economics. And then, but with the mandate, this, the mandate of, of unemployment and, and, um, and price stability, uh, it, it, there, there may be, um, and these are, I think the problem is really uh, over what time period you wish to uh, implement this mandate. That my, uh, my criticism, I think it's the same that, that, say, Bill White, who you mentioned, who used to be chief economist at the Bank for International Settlements, I, I think the, the argument uh, Bill would make, and I think that the argument also made by uh, economists at, at the Bank of Japan uh, who looked back upon you know the the bubble economy of the of of Japan in in the eighteen eighties um, when which occurred when when inflation was very low and they the argument has been that well you need to actually it doesn't say in the mandate that you should be thinking about immediate inflation or trailing inflation um, but you should actually um, you should think of it over a longer period. If you think now, look at the central bankers today. You know, two years ago, if you remember, Jay Powell was saying you know he wasn't even thinking about thinking about raising interest, and you know uh, the policy establishment were talking about you know um, inflate you know inflation inflation expectations or inflation fundamentals uh, being. You know, well anchored and no risk of inflation. Then it takes them by surprise. So you could have said, well, um, if they'd had the right, <laughs> if they had both the right model and the right time frame, uh, then then perhaps they could have delivered. Uh, they could could have delivered, uh, done a better job. The other point, as you know, I make in the book uh, is that I think the. Um, the fuss that central bankers have made about deflation uh, is uh, that you know falling price level is um, is is completely wrong. They got hysterical about the risk of deflation. Well, you know, the average working person, frankly, doesn't complain when you know the computer or the price of beer or the car costs less one year than another. Deflation. <laughs> Uh, makes one uh, better off, I mean, providing one's income hasn't shrunk. They, I mean, as far as I can see, the the, the great losers from deflation are uh, a corporation. So the, the the point is that I I think it was it's misunderstood uh, the nature of deflation. There are some there are uh, good deflations and bad deflations. Like there are just like there's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, and the good. Cl- the good, the good deflation comes when you have productivity improvements that lower the prices that make people better off. I mean, it means that their spending goes further. And we we had that good deflation. Uh, you know, frankly, you know, as a result of globalization, as far as I can see, and from um, some you know, techno- technological improvements. But the central bankers used that good deflation. Uh, or uh, spooked was spooked at that good deflation into lowering interest rates, fueling the asset price bubbles and credit booms. That then, when they bust, they give you the bad deflation of um, of 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 an economy that contracts when, and and a money supply that contracts when everyone tries to pay off their debt, having realised they've got into too much debt. So I, I think that um, you know. Uh, uh, you know, there needs to be a sort of deeper understanding of both the nature of inflation and deflation. And, you know, you think now, you know, people complaining about, you know, the cost of living crisis. Well, uh, no one was complaining, <laughs> frankly, when uh, when price level was relatively stable and, and year on year price changes were uh, there was no no movement year on year in, in the consumer price index. Only the central bankers who who uh, use that as a pretext to engage in um in you know in 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 monetary policy experiments 
Well, there was the, you know, the fear uh, of the zero lower bound and, you know, what it does to the efficacy of monetary policy and all that stuff. But you, 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 you we, obviously the book makes a, a wonderful case for uh, at least uh, giving some more credence or appreciation for the unintended consequences of discretionary monetary policy. At, at the end of the book, you seem to express uh, that there may be some hope in the form of a central bank digital currency. Would you briefly outline that idea for us? So, you know, go back to our discussion about the natural rate. When John Locke was writing about this in the in the seventeenth century, we only there was only um, a very limited uh, banking system, uh, and um, the gold and silver were the basis of the currency and you couldn't uh you can't you know increase the amount of gold uh by waving a wand and so that i think that meant that the the that the that the uh the interest charge uh was more closely related to if you will the market forces determining the, you know the the demand for credit and the supply of credit uh, then you move into a, um, a fiat money world where money is created uh, both by central banks but also by commercial banks by making loans that end up as deposits in the banking system. Well, then really you can see that there's no if, – if there's no sort of finite supply of money, uh, then the interest charges are always going to be somewhat random or somewhat – set by some policy criteria. And in a way, and I suppose if one's being pessimistic, you're going to say that uh, you know, no one is ever going to sort of to fully understand the financial system well enough to set a perfect rate. Just as, you know, if I asked you to, you know, to uh, price some, some random article, you know, I don't know, I've got, I've got a microphone in front of me, I, you wouldn't know how to, price that because you know, even if you took into account all the you know the the parts that that went into it in the end it's best left to to market to price these things now i you know this is just a an idea if we move to a world in which i'm not saying moving back to a, a gold standard because there were problems with the gold standard but if we move to a world in which let's say, a central bank digital currency uh, became the basis for money uh, and that and that banks no longer, you know, bank, financial activity would then consist not of creating money but of lending this, if you will, scarce resource. And you could mandate to uh, increase the the amount of money in the system by, I don't know what, you know, pro, you, your, some assumption of, of GDP growth plus perhaps, you know, a tiny bit of nominal inflation if you insist on some, some inflation. Um, so let's say this currency, this, this money increases by 4% a year, uh, but, but with a hard break on that automatic increase, then the, I, I think there would be a better balancing, uh, the, the, the price of borrowing this, genuinely scarce resource uh, would more truly reflect actual um, uh, supplier savings, deferred consumption and, um, and the, and, and the demand for those savings, actual investment. And, and I'm not saying, I mean, I don't really elaborate it uh, in the book, but I, I don't think this would lead to a world that was free of booms and busts. Um, But it might be a world in which you know we didn't see quite such extremes of um, of 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 interest rates either high or low. It might be a world of of of, of price stability over the long term. But I, I, I you know the the main problem with that idea is that you'd have to change the financial system. I mean, frankly, you know banks. You know, if you went down this system, banks you know would lose their deposits. They would cease to operate uh, as they as they have done. They would have to be um, 
more intermediators of of money. I, I think that um, I, th- I think that they, you know, the financial system has sort of huge lobbying power, and and really we would only go down that route if our monetary system had completely failed. So I, I don't think you're going to get there unless you know and you know except at the end of a, of really a, a worst case scenario that would end with a, a need for a, a, a systemic monetary reform. Well, it's an interesting idea. I think my favorite quote from the book is, uh, America's central bank exercises power without responsibility. And it, and it seems like this is an idea to begin. I, I, if, to I, if, I, if, I, if I'd been uh, more polemical, I would have said, I would have, I would have added the the full original quote, which I think is the prerogative of the whore throughout the ages. <laughs> That's right, um, and I, I think it's, a, I, but I think it's a great idea. To I mean, we need to be, start talking about these things and and coming up with ideas because I think we are probably at a point in time with the rise of populism and inequality where where we're hopefully going to see some change at some point in the future, but. The Price of Time is, is a fantastic read. I, I just think it's a must read for investors. Um, you've been very generous in sharing your time with me today. Where where can people go to learn more about you or just keep up with your, your latest work? Um, well, I I have a my own website. Um, um, and then I, I write a column for Reuters Breaking Views, uh, which goes out on the Reuters website so um that is you know th- those two places will you'll see sort of more or less what i'm doing okay and and i'll have a, a link uh a, a blog post up on my website with the links to your book and all of these other things we've talked about at thefelderreport.com um edward you've been so generous uh with sharing your time and knowledge with me today thank you so much thanks jesse it's been fun And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.